At our AGM last Sunday afternoon, I asked how many people read poetry. There was only one or two that put their hands up. When one of them is there, um, I want to ask you this afternoon: How many of us listen to hip hop? I guess some of our um, some of our folk here don't. Anyone else listen to hip hop? Mel listens to jazz. Aaron, yep. Uh, a couple of years ago, a hip hop artist, Australian guy. Lives in Sydney, Earthboy released a song, Long Loud Hours. In the song, he says, I've got no one else to turn to. I really don't want to burn you, but you're all I have. Will you set me free? It's his most popular song. It's a very powerful song, musically very powerful. Does anyone know what it's the story of? It's a story of a love story that, that occurred just down the road from where we are now. John Killick and Lucy Duco were in love, in fact, madly in love. They wrote letters to one another. They wrote over 2,000 letters to one another. But this was no conventional relationship. John Killick was a career criminal. And Lucy Duco was a librarian with a PhD from Russia. And yet she fell... Madly, madly in love, and madly is the word, because one day in 1997, under the guise of a joy flight over the Olympic site, she hijacked a helicopter, commandeered it via gunpoint, and she forced the pilot to land that helicopter in the exercise yard of Silverwater Prison. Outcomes running the love of her life, John Killick. He jumps into the helicopter. The helicopter takes off. The guards are shooting at the helicopter. They don't hit it. The helicopter lands just over the creek there in ride at an oval. They run out from the helicopter. They carjack, they, uh, j- carjack uh, and get into a car and drive down to Victoria. They're on the loose for six weeks before they're captured. Have you heard this? This is a true story. I'm not making this up. It's an amazing story, incredible, just down the road. But is it a love story? What do you guys think? I want to ask you, is it a love story? Incredible dedication by Lucy. Is it a love story? What do you think? Good story, perhaps? Is it a love story? Come on. No, Jen, you don't think so? No? Why is that? Sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What? Which, like... In terms of, okay, right, yeah, interesting, interesting, yeah, yeah. Any other? What, what do other people think? You think it's a love story? Yeah, it was desperate, 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 yeah. Yeah, that kind of comments. Really think it was a love story. Come, you guys have been married for ten years. Is it a love story? No, that is no, no. It's an interesting story, um, but I don't think it's a love story. What we're going to see is the opposite of this story. We're going to see the very opposite of this story in Acts chapter sixteen, and we're going to see a profound love. A profound love that the Lord Jesus has 
And that love releases people. Releases people not from literal prisons, but from worse kinds of prisons. Prisons of themselves and of sin. If you open up there to Luke's, Luke chapter, sorry, Luke Acts chapter 16, um, the background to this passage is that we see the Apostle Paul and Titus preaching the gospel in the first century. And they come across this slave girl there in verse 16. They were met by a slave girl and she had a spirit which predicted the future. That's a very, very good talent. Imagine that. Uh, If that was you, you'd be tempted towards the TAB or the casino, wouldn't you? Well, here is this woman who is oppressed in so many ways. She's a female slave. Uh, Jim will tell you, an expert in the first century, a female slave was the very bottom of society. There was nothing below a a female slave. And here is this woman who's oppressed, who's controlled by others. She controls not her body, she doesn't control her mind or her income. She earns money, but she doesn't earn money for herself. And here she encounters the gospel as Paul walks by. And there in verse 18, Paul says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And this must have been wonderful news for this young woman, but her owners are not celebrating. Her owners aren't celebrating why? Because their cash cow has just dried up. The shift in the book of Acts here is to the impact of this liberation for this one woman to the impact for Paul and Silas, his offsider. Because an oppressor hates nothing more than what? A liberator. Oppressors don't like liberators and so the blowback comes back To Paul, you see there in verse 20 that they're dragged before the magistrates and these people are claiming what? They healed this young girl? No. They're cooking up a story there in verse 20. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar. Uproar. What here is the issue is that these men were making a killing out of this girl. She's healed and they've lost their ability to make money out of her. See, what they said was the issue, that they're Jews and that uh, they're causing um, public uh, uproar is not, in fact, the issue. And so Paul and Silas are imprisoned. Are imprisoned for what? They're imprisoned for the consequences of the liberation of this young woman. There in verse 22, the crowd join in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates order them to be stripped and beaten. This is an important point for us to realise. Because as Christian people, the gospel of the Lord Jesus is so precious to us. It means so much. Because we've experienced it in our own life, we've seen it in other people's lives. But we ought not expect that everyone thinks that the gospel of the liberation of the Lord Jesus is great. We especially ought not to think of those who hold control over a person. For them to think that the gospel of liberation is good news. You think about it, 
in terms of large-scale a uh, country like China, China very fearful at the upper echelons of government about the impact of Christianity. Why? Because they fear a loss of control. There are people who in family lives have become Christian, the people in our church, some here. When they become Christian, the impact of it upon their family when they come to know the Lord Jesus, when they come to realise the liberation that they have in him, this is not met by welcome. Why? Because family sometimes lose control. We ought not think everyone will greet the gospel of liberation with welcome, with welcome. And indeed, that's our world at large, is it not? We speak gospel in our world, but our world for so, for so often doesn't want to hear it. Why? Because for many in our world, to give, to trust in the Lord Jesus would be to give control, to give up control. Back to Acts 16. I'm not sure if you've seen any of those documentaries on prison life. Has anyone seen a documentary on prison life? No one. Okay, what, two, okay, yep, three. The same people listen to hip-hop. Yeah, there's a theme here. I, um, a couple of years ago, I went to Silverwater Prison. Uh, a man that we support in ministry, James Deaton, uh, had, has a prison ministry. It was firstly at Silverwater, now up the coast. But I went there, and I've been there a couple of times. And it's a chilling experience to enter a prison. It's very confronting because uh, you walk along this long corridor, and there it's like in the documentaries. There are prisoners literally behind vertical bars, and I was just waiting for them to get the enamel cup and, and you know, ring it along the bars. And then you, you walk along this corridor where they are just staring at you, and I didn't know where to look. You know, where, where do you look? These men are kind of looking at you. Do you look at them in the eye? Do you kind of mouth, g'day? Like, I, I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden I turned a corner and then it opens out. And you're in the very same area that those prisoners were that you were peering through the bars at. There they were, just as you are to me. It's the atmosphere in a prison is one of suspicion. The atmosphere in a prison is one of fear. The atmosphere in a prison is one of hostility. And if you work in a prison, I've talked to James a fair bit about this, you don't survive. You don't survive as a prisoner or as a guard by being nice, by being gentle or even by being fair. In fact, James tells me that most hostility in his prison chaplaincy ministry comes not from the inmates but from the guards because to work in a prison for a decent amount of time there is a sense in which a little bit of your humanity uh, is lost and we meet that kind of man there in verse 23 because here is a man who has been in charge of a jail for a long time and he is I don't think a gentle man, verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, that is Paul and Silas, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, they put him in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. See what the jailer does, this hardened man who's been around criminals for a long time, 
It locks them up good, real good. Two things to note, they've just been beaten, so their backs are a pulpy mess. But firstly, he puts them in the inner cell, which was reserved for those prisoners who had committed treason. The outer cell would have had some degree of light and ventilation, but not, not for these guys. They're in the inner cell with no windows, no air, a literal dungeon, a desperate place. And then additional to that, what does he do? He puts them in stocks, which was also unnecessary, seeing that they were in a dungeon, a dark dungeon, he additionally puts them in stocks. Why would he go to such extremes just for a couple of religious people? Well, this jailer is a man under orders, And Paul and Silas, as we see in the book of Acts, have a reputation for some crazy stuff. You see, if the jailer was to lose these prisoners, or any prisoners, it would most likely be at the cost of his life. When John Killick escaped from prison, I don't know that anyone lost their job. But in the first century, and you were a jailer, you lost a prisoner. You didn't just lose your job, you lost your life. Can you imagine this guy, knowing he's got these two prisoners in his jail? He wants to make doubly sure that these two don't go anywhere, belt and braces, inner cell and stocks. It's probable that this man was a retired army officer. And if, as I've suggested, if he spent any time around prisons, he would have been a very hardened man. This was not a man... You know, who was on a spiritual quest for enlightenment. This is not a man who was probably in touch with his feelings. This is not a man who was into skin products and exfoliation. This was a hardened, jailed man. And there in verse 25, what does he do? He closes the door on Paul and Silas in the darkness. He goes home for the night. He hears perhaps, you know, a bit of bit of kumbaya, a bit of singing from these prisoners, but, you know, that's their kind of namby-pamby, singy-songy stuff. That's what those religious people do. Would have seemed kind of pathetic, really, in the light of being in the inner cell in stock singing your religious songs. But there in verse 25, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing singing hymns to God and other prisoners were listening to them. See, their incarceration was an attempt to to squash the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was on the loose. It was turning upside down the ancient world and those in power were fearful of its impact and so they needed to stop it. What's the best way to stop it short of killing these men? It's to lock them in the inner prison. It's to put them in shackles. That'll be the end of this religious nonsense, of this uproar. But there they are, living in the darkness, the same way they did on the outside, in the light. You know, it's great to sing. Who... Put your hand up if you sing in the car. Just, you're just by yourself. Yes. And then, you know, someone got over you at the lights and then someone looks over at you and you're singing and perhaps they can even hear you or hear the music of your car and you're very embarrassed. I, I do it. But when you sing, 
tell you when I sing, I sing when I'm happy. I love to sing when I'm happy. I never sing when I'm sad. You see, everyone can sing when the sun shines, when it's a beautiful day, when you're on the outside, when everything is as it should be. But I've got to ask you a question this afternoon. Can you sing? Can you sing in the darkness of the night? Well, the Apostle Paul and Silas could. Why? How could they? How could they be singing to God in the middle of this reality? Well, this is the God of this slave girl. Earlier on, this is the God of Lydia. We read in the book of Acts that this is the God, in fact, of all nations and all people. The God who holds people's heart in his hands. And if he is the God who holds people's heart in his hand, is he not also the God who holds your life in his hands every moment of it? In his hands. See, he is sovereign. He is in control. He is the king who is our father, no matter how dark the night. And so, as a Christian, we need to prepare ourselves for for dark nights. We need to prepare ourselves on the outside, in the light, to prepare ourselves for darkness. Uh, Some of you know that Mandy and I um, lost a son, and uh, for the first year after our son died, uh, it was a time that both Mandy and I would say this, we felt no spiritual attack, we felt no level of spiritual despair, we felt upheld by people's prayers, and I think a large part of that was because before we entered that darkness... God had prepared us in the light. He prepared us in truths, deep truths, about God's sovereign hand, about his fatherly hand, about his love, about his care, his perfect, his protection and his provision, no matter what. We heard that truth in the light so we could sing it in the darkness. See, when God strips you of everything you thought would hold you, when you find the things that you once trusted and longed for to be so flimsy, what you find in the darkness is God to be so firm. And believe it or not, that is a joy you can't understand when everything is fantastic. It's in fact a joy you can't understand in the light on, on in the outside. You see, so often, and I, I know that lesson, God's taught me that lesson, but I forget it all the time. See, here's my problem, and I think it's your problem too. I think everything will be okay in my life once all the ducks are lined up. Once everything is the way that I want it to be, then I can praise God wholeheartedly from the very depths of who I are with great unabiding joy. So I want to ask us the question this afternoon, do you have a joy that is rooted in something deep? In something that's beyond just your circumstances, beyond just even what happened to you today, such that if your money was to be taken away, 
if your freedom was to be taken away, if your comfort was to be taken away, or even if it looked like your life was to be taken away, there would still be a joy that's sung in the night. See, praise. The praise of God will not change our circumstances, but the praise of God changes our hearts in the circumstances. Notice there at the end of verse 25. Don't underestimate the power of a worshipping community. We've experienced, I hope you've experienced that in the last little bit, just as you've come. I don't know, what is it? 25 people here singing songs on a piano. What is that in the world? That's, that's nothing, it's pathetic. But don't, <clears throat> don't underestimate the power of a worshipping community. Because this is what God does. He gets us together to sing his praises and to hear others sing his praises. And that's what church is about. Hearing what we can't hear by ourselves. Hearing from one another the word of God in a way in which we don't hear it when we're by ourselves. The jailer may have gone to sleep that night with a certainty. Jailers, military men, operate on certainty. And they operate on certainty that's tested every single day. You know, when you lock that door behind the prisoner, you lock it with what? You lock it with certainty. It's tested. Locked doors, chains, inner cells bring certainty in a jailer's life. A certainty of control that he exerts over other people and their lives. But as he wakes that morning, that certainty, the certainty that he'd built his life around is now undermined and it's replaced with a panic. It's replaced with the panic of an earthquake there in verse 27 because the jailer woke up and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he did what any sane man would do, panic. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But there in the middle of his personal panic comes these calm words. Don't worry. We're here. Paul shouted, verse 28, don't harm yourself. We're here. And this is what's remarkable. The earthquake is remarkable. It's supernatural. We'll get to that in a moment. But there is something more extraordinary than the earthquake. And it's not that the earthquake has caused the doors to be open. It's what Paul and Silas do or don't do that's truly extraordinary. Because Paul and Silas knew once the doors were open, obviously, they could escape. After all, they didn't deserve to be in there, did they? All they did was heal this young woman... And they also knew that if they escaped, it would cost the jailer his life. Luke really wants us to understand that as he records the, um, the, the prospect of the jailer killing himself. Guess what? They stayed. They replaced what? Evil with good. And they knew all they had to do was just let one guy leave and the jailer would be gone. After all, that's what the jailer did to them. That's what the jailer did to them. 
And the jailer has never seen anything like this. He hasn't seen it in a prison before. He hasn't seen it in life before. Because he only can see what we know as the grace of God through the spirit of God. See, where did they get that motivation to stay? To stay for the sake of the jailer? Where did they get that kind of motivation not to repay the way in which he had beaten them? I mean, seriously, if you were in the same situation and I asked myself, like, what would you do? I, I tell you what, I would have been legging it out of there. I wouldn't have, you know, that's his fault. That's his problem. Are you as bad as I am? Yeah, well, some of you are a bit better, I know, but that's what I would have been doing. Where do they get that from? See, the ultimate example of repaying evil for good was the Lord Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus paid, sorry, Jesus was praying for forgiveness for the people who were, what, killing him. To put it another way, the reason they would not get their freedom at the expense of the jailer's life was because they already had their freedom at the expense of Jesus' life. I've got no one else to turn to. I really don't want to burn you, but you're all I have. Will you set me free? See, John Killick was not just a prisoner in Silverwater. He was a prisoner to his own selfishness, wasn't he? And this is really a picture of the condition that the Bible says that every human person is in. It's not just John Killick. The thing is, the Bible says we're all like John Killick. We're not in civil water prison, but we're trapped. We're entrapped so in ourselves. Even the Apostle Paul, this great man who in this act of sacrifice motivated by the Lord Jesus, will write as he uh, encourages the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, he'll, he'll talk about this trappedness of his life, how he can't stop the way in which sin just keeps creeping up on him. He says in a moment of desperation, who will rescue me? Who will, heal me? Who will get me out of this trap? Is a sense in which Romans, 24, Romans chapter 7 verse 24 has. And he says these beautiful words, thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, we know that we're all trapped. John Killick knew he was trapped. But he sought salvation in another person. And this is what happens in life so many times. Plenty of people know that in their lives, you don't have to be religious, they're trapped. They're trapped to certain behaviours. They're trapped within themselves. And what happens so often is that we seek to be freed by another person. We seek to be freed by a marriage. We seek to be freed perhaps by a career. We seek to be freed by acquiring something. But these things never free us. Those of us who have been married long enough can testify that no marriage frees you. No marriage frees you. The only thing that will free us from the burden of ourselves is the Lord Jesus. See, we are obsessed with ourselves, and our culture reinforces this. It dictates to us that we must know ourselves, that we must bend reality to fit into what our story. 
Another remarkable thing, Lucy, who in 1997 hijacked that helicopter. In prison, she was visited by a chaplain. And the chaplain kept coming to her, giving her material, and she read it. She read about freedom. She read about forgiveness. And she became a Christian because she had met a different man. She had met a different man. She had met a man who could truly free her, a man who wasn't demanding of her life for him, but a man who would give his life for her. The jailer, through this act of grace, asks there in verse 29, verse 30, sorry, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, there's a shift. This hardened man who I expect wanted nothing to do with religious things, spiritual matters, supernaturally God enters his life in a remarkable way. And friends, that's how anyone becomes a Christian. There's always a supernatural experience. Because the most supernatural reality that occurred there in Acts 16 was the softening of that man's heart. The jailer realises the irony here, that he's in a kind of prison, that when he had put Paul and Silas in chains, they were the ones who were truly free. The jailer was in a prison of himself. See, for those who are sceptical about Christianity... Many people operate on certain life-tested assumptions that have no place for God in them. And we can, you know, as we ought, present the gospel to them, gently prod and probe and seek to undermine those assumptions. But people operate on that assumption all the time. You know those people, right? Just no room for God, no matter what you say. What it takes, friends, for anyone to become a Christian is for God to supernaturally enter their lives. What would it take, if you're not a Christian, to have your scepticism tested, to be undermined? I want to close, bring these things to a close. A couple of things I want to say. Firstly, in terms of application, firstly, the door and guidance If you're a Christian person, if you come to trust in the Lord Jesus and you know the freedom that we have in the gospel, there's a reality in our lives that it's not just a freedom that we have for ourselves. Acts chapter 16 helps us see that it's a freedom that we have for the sake of others. Imagine if Paul knew his freedom in the gospel but kept on walking out the door. Often Christians speak about um, God opening doors for them. And uh, I understand, and in fact, the language is biblical. But what isn't biblical is that just because God opens a door for you, that doesn't mean you have to go through it. If Paul and Silas had decided to walk through that door, this man would not have been saved. And it wouldn't have been wrong for them to walk through that door. They were imprisoned by Roman law. 
In our modern world, there are so many choices. And it seems as though God opens so many doors for us. We have so many choices before us. And so we need to be careful. I think we live in this age for which we have tremendous freedom of choice and Christians uh, uh, um, have this freedom of choice like no other Christians have had in, for 2,000 years. But we must be careful to consider our motivations. Paul wasn't purely motivated for himself. He was, in fact, motivated by others. He was concerned for others. He was willing to sacrifice his freedom for others. And so we must be willing to do the same. Because that's what it takes to love people. It takes a level of sacrifice. There's so many opportunities that we have, so many things that we can be doing. But it takes a level of sacrifice to love one another and love one another deeply as we're called to as a people of God. We're going to pray that God will soften and work supernaturally in people's hearts. And let's, let's pray for that end. Let's pray that God would release us from our own prison of selfishness and sin through the Lord Jesus. Let me pray as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short narrative of your miraculous work. And we ask, Father, that you would see, help us see the radical reorientation that the gospel brings to our lives, the wonderful freedom that we have. And we ask, Father, now as we consider Paul's example based on the example of your son, that you would give us that same freedom, freedom from ourselves, to live in love and service and sacrifice for the sake of others. Father, would you empower us by your spirit for this end? Because we don't do it naturally and we can't do it by ourselves. So we pray it in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.